as the church planner in residence here at the Hallows Church, and it is my joy and my honor uh, and my privilege to get to open the word with you guys today. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to the book of Luke. Uh, Luke is a story of Jesus told by a guy who followed around Jesus' followers in the early first century, a man named Luke. He was a doctor and a lawyer, very smart dude, uh, wrote a beautiful, beautiful um, story of Jesus, and it's in what we call the New Testament, about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. Uh, if you can't find it, look at the table of contents. It tells you exactly where to go. It's way faster than just flipping, but um, today I want to just uh, continue with our sermon series called Luke, uh, Luke, A Story for Sinners and Sufferers, and um, man, sin and suffering, uh, just like every week, continues to compound, right? Uh, as we start... As we dig into this book together, we see uh, the Lord exposes sin in my own life and, and in the lives of the church. And um, as we look out into the world, we see the suffering that is happening all around us. And so, man, what, how awesome is God's providence to have us going through this book with this emphasis at this time? Um, it's really, really cool. So... Um, before we get started, let's just pray. I know, I know George just prayed, but I've, I've had, I don't know about you guys, but it's been a really crazy week for me. Um, and so I'm just going to ask that God during this time quiets my heart and focuses my mind and, and just that we all together turn our minds, attention, and our heart's affections towards him. Yeah, Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to go to your word. Father, we believe that every word that we are reading is inspired by you, was written so that we might believe, so that we would understand that everything that we have heard about Jesus is true. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where we are in the story, see what you meant when you were inspiring Luke to write it, but ultimately, Lord, that we would see who you are, God, that we would be driven to worship, that we would be driven to understanding. God, I pray that you would be with me in my preparation and in my lack of preparation. God, that it would be your words and not my words. In Jesus' name, amen. So at 34 years old, I am probably the best version of myself that I've ever been. A little heavier, maybe, a little less in shape, uh, but over 34 years, God has been shaping me towards the person that I believe he created me to be. Now, uh, if that, what that means is that if I'm the best version of myself now, there were some not-so-good versions earlier on. And so this is a story about one of those not-so-good uh, versions. It's not like, you know, I'm not going to dive into like some deep, dark secret, but just give you a, a look into who I used to be. Um, this is part Jesus, a lot my wife that has changed some of these things. Uh, but when I was, uh, gosh, I would have been probably 21, 22 years old, maybe 23, I don't know. There, time is weird. Anyway, let's say 23 for the sake of things. So for 23, I was 23 years old. I was leaving the girl's house that I was dating at the time. I was driving a 93 Chevy Lumina that was like a yacht. Like this thing was huge. It also didn't have a lot of working things on it. 
Um, and so it couldn't pass an inspection. See, in, in, uh, in Texas, where I was living at the time, to, in order to renew your registration every year, you have to get your car inspected, and it has to pass all these certain things. And I'm pretty sure that my car could pass none of those things. Um, so I uh, had neglected to get my car uh, inspected and then registered for, I don't know, four years. So, uh, so I have a, a sticker on the back of my car that says that my car was last registered uh, four years prior, uh, which was accurate. And so I'm pulling away from this, uh, this young lady's house and uh, I, I need to um, go by a place that I know is notorious for police officers to be. Um, and lo and behold, there's a police officer there. So I'm like making sure I'm going the speed limit, making sure that I'm not tapping my brakes because I'm pretty sure my brake lights are out. Like I'm just, you know, doing everything I can to like sneak by and, and be okay. And I see this police officer whip out behind me. And I'm like, okay, all right, we're all right. So I'm like, you know what? He's probably just going somewhere else. Let's turn into this gas station. So I turn into a gas station. He pulls up a couple, a couple, probably a thousand feet maybe, up the road and waits. Because he knows that I may be in this gas station, but I eventually have to leave this gas station. And he was right. So I am like trying to bide my time. Like I walk in and like I'm taking a long time perusing. Like I'm thinking I can wake this guy out, right? Like he's got other things that he's got to deal with, right? Like there's, there's crime. Uh, so hopefully, you know, I don't, I'm wanting a crime to happen, but if a crime were to occur, praise God. Anyway, so like we're super excited about, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm in this, I'm anxious. I'm like, all right, it'll be okay. So I get back into my car and I'm looking and the police officer is still there. And I'm like, Lord, let them be drinking coffee, eating donuts. I don't know, whatever they do, you know? So I turn very slowly and then gun it because I knew that my exit to like get on the, the highway was just like a quarter mile away. Like I, I think if I could get onto the highway and get out of the city limits of New Boston, maybe he can't pull me over, right? Like this is my thought process as a 23 year old. So like I like really quickly just accelerate away and then I'm right about to turn onto the entry ramp and lights uh, fill my rear view mirror and I pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> the police officer comes in and says, do you know why I stopped you? And I was like, absolutely. I have no idea, officer. I wasn't speeding. I'm just trying to get home. I'm a student. I'm, you know, the nicest person you've ever known. Like anything I could say, I'm saying. And he says, uh, do you have your insurance? And um, I said, there's a funny thing about that. <laughs> no. Um, he said, did you know that your tags were expired? And I lied. What? My tag, I'm so sorry. He said, yeah, about four years. It's like, sir, I, you know, I, I've been in college. And I'm just so sorry. And uh, there was no grace to be had here. So he walks back to his car. He writes me two tickets uh, and then brings them to me. I am a college student at this point. I have no money. So I go drive all the way out to the New Boston Courthouse uh, for my court date. At this time, I had, gotten, um, uh, I had gotten insurance, so I was showing that to the judge. Uh, and then um, I hadn't gotten my car registered because it just wasn't going to pass uh, inspection. So I just paid that fine. Um, and, and then the judge, in my remembrance, the judge says, you know, everything is okay. Go, you know, go 
you're, you're merry way and we're fine. I'm like, okay, good, I'm good. A Couple years later, I have a new car at this point. A couple years later, I am uh, about to go on a trip and my license needs to be renewed because it's, it's expired, I've reached that point. Um, and so I go to the licensing office and I'm trying to renew my license and they say, Do you, did you know that you have like a $800 fine to the city of New Boston? I was like, that can't be right. No, that's not true. Are you sure? She's like, yes, yeah, you, you have this fine. And I was like, well, okay, can I just get an ID? Because if I have an ID, I can get on the plane and then I'll, I'll deal with it when I get back. So I go to California and a couple more years pass. And now I realize that I do not have a license. So for about six or so years, my license is expired. It's not suspended. It is just expired without the ability to be renewed, okay? So at, uh, at the, the time we find ourselves, about 20, 2015 at this point, I've got a new job, and one of the things that I have to have for that job is a license because I have to be put on the insurance of the organization I'm working for because I have to drive a van. I pick up students and bring them to uh, this mentoring program that we were running. And I don't have a license. <laughs> So I'm making up all sorts of excuses as to why I didn't have a license or why it just needed to be a little bit until I got it. Um, so I call up the New Boston City Council or whatever place and with my nicest voice, yes, ma'am, um, I think that I have a fine that I didn't pay a few years ago and I just really, it's been eating at me and I really want to pay that. Like, I, you know, I'm eager to fix this, right? Thinking like the, the eagerness will, will work in my, to my advantage here. Um, it didn't. Uh, so the, the, the very not kind lady on the other line, uh, the other end of the line says, um, actually, yes, you also have a bent warrant, a bench warrant out for your arrest. Um, and um, that warrant has been, was issued years ago. Um, so you <laughs> have a problem. And I said, sounds like a big problem. I don't think I would do well in prison. So um, I said, so what can I do? Like, what can we do to fix this? And she says, well, you can pay $1,500 um, and um, you can come and beg the judge to take your bench warrant away. And I was like, well, that, that doesn't work for me. So uh, I said, it, there's, like, there's nothing. There's nothing that we can do. She said, I, I, I don't know. And I could tell she was exhausted. Like, I could tell that people all the time are calling this lady and saying, you know, making up elaborate stories. My story wasn't so elaborate, it was just honest, but making up these stories as to why they can't pay what they owe. So I said, ma'am, I'm just gonna be honest. I've known about this. I was young when it happened. I'm young now. I'm broke, I'm starting a job. I'm six hours away from you. I will pay whatever I have to. Is there any way that we can kind of figure this out? And, and I, I could hear her kind of release some tension and anger. And she says, let me call the judge. So she calls the judge. She gets back to me and she says, okay, so the bench warrant, if you pay today, 
that warrant for your arrest will be taken away. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And she said, with that bench warrant, they'll also waive the warrant fee, which is about $500. I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And she said, and because you have been so kind and, and you know, because you've called and you want to, to get this worked out, we're, we're going to take away some of the extra fees that came along with it. And so $1,500 became about $500, which was still about $495 too much. <laughs> and I said, so, uh, so what do I need to do to pay this? Can I do a payment plan? She said, listen. You're pushing your luck. Like, you've gotten way too far. You've gotten so much taken care of. I'm going to do a payment plan. I was like, you know what? Yeah, that's fair. Okay, we'll, we'll do that. So I get off the phone, and even though the weight of $1,000 was taken off me and, and a warrant for my arrest, I still have the weight of $500 that I just simply didn't have. I had no idea how I'm going to pay this debt. And even though the debt was smaller than it was just five minutes ago, it still felt like a millstone around my neck. It, it, was, it was an impossible thing for me to do. And so I happened to be talking with one of my friends, um, and I just said, I said, man, you know, I, this is what's going on. I just need an event with somebody. And then I get an alert on my phone from PayPal. And my boss sent me $500. And he said, look, this isn't a loan. I just want to make sure that you can do what you need to do. God's calling you to this new place. Here you go. And man, like, have you ever been carrying like a really heavy backpack for a long time and you know that feeling when you get to like take it off and just how everything just feels so much lighter and better your back doesn't hurt as much it feels like you can stand up straighter that's that's what I felt like my debt was forgiven and now I could do what I'd been called to do take care of these students half a world away from where I was But it didn't just change how I felt. It actually, this, this very real instance changed uh, how I acted. Because you see, I never wanted to get back to that point again, right? Like I never wanted to be in a spot where for six years, every single time I saw a police officer, my heart just exploded because I knew if I got pulled over, I was going to jail because I didn't have a license, right? I knew every time that I was anywhere, even as I went to register my car, like it didn't matter what I was doing. I had the weight of this, this knowledge of this debt that I owed and of this suspension of my license literally hanging over me and I, I didn't live a day without that knowledge. And so I refused to go back there. And it was a long road. I had to retake my driving test like 12 years after I had first taken it. And in Texas, at the time I got my license, I actually didn't have to take a driving test. So I had never taken a driving test before. Like my mom just signed a paper and I got a license, which is horrifying. But like, uh, you know, I got, I, I had a license. So for the first time at like 27, 28 years old, I was taking my driver's test for the first time. And the car that I was driving at this point didn't open. Uh, the, the door handle didn't work. 
I drove a lot of bad cars. Uh, the door handle didn't work, so I couldn't test in that car, so I had to borrow someone else's car. Like, it was a long road to getting my license back, but I did. And I, today, have a valid driver's license, and my wife is so happy. <laughs> Because I tell her this story, and it stresses her out. And she didn't even know me when all this was going on. But the forgiveness of this debt changed everything about how I interacted with licensing. Like, I knew I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to where I was. I had to move forward. And today, the story that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 5 is a, a story where Jesus begins to forgive sin. And sin is that same type of weight. It's a, a weight that we carry around with us. It's the, it's, there's a knowledge that we always owe something that we can't pay, that there's a penalty that we're going to pay. Like when, you know, once our life ends, we've got to pay the piper, Right? We're going to stand face to face with Jesus and we're going to give an account of all of the things that we have done. And so the weight of sin is heavy. And so we see here a story where Jesus begins to assert his authority to forgive sin. So let's dive in. We're in chapter 5, verse 17. It says this. On one of those days while he was teaching, he being Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also Jerusalem, and the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came carrying a stretcher, a man who was carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. So just to to kind of back us up here, last week we got to discuss this story of Jesus cleansing a leper. And we talked about Jesus taking away and healing and cleansing our deepest uncleanness. And I, we talked about, uh, those of you that were here last week, that in, in Matthew, Matthew is another gospel writer. Uh, in Matthew's description, he, te- he says that, that the story of the leper comes right after the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have, uh, you know, if you're an overachiever and you've done some reading ahead, you'll realize that Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount actually comes way later than this story of the leper. And so oftentimes when we're reading the Gospels, which is, uh, you know, the stories of Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's about 90 to 95 percent of those that are the same. They have the same content, but almost always that content comes in a different order. Now, people who are antagonists against the truth of the Bible point to that see, they can't even get their story straight. It's such a silly argument because if the content is the same, the story is probably true. Now, we may have gotten it out of order, but really the thing that we need to remember is that each writer of a gospel wrote for a specific purpose. So yes, they were writing, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were were writing true events, but they wrote to a certain group of people in a certain style 
And they group things the way that fit best to communicate the same story. And so here, Luke has been working to set the stage for Jesus. Luke goes all the way back to the birth of Jesus. And he has the most extensive account of Jesus' birth. Because it's important that we understand that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem and that he, his father was God himself. It's important as we walk through the story, Luke tells of this, this uh, rejection at Nazareth where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads uh, a, uh, a passage out of Isaiah and claims that the passage of Isaiah is speaking about him. And man, that takes some people off. And so they reject him. They reject his authority. And so Luke has been setting up this whole story to come to this moment. He showed that Jesus has authority over demons. Because right after Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, he tells a story of Jesus casting out demons from a woman. Then he shows that Jesus has authority over diseases by showing the, the healing of the leper. And now he's going to show that Jesus has authority over the death that sin causes. And so yes, these stories may be out of order, but they're, they're put together in sequence for a very real purpose. Sin enters the story right before the story of the leper when Jesus shows his authority to call men to become fishers of men. He calls Peter, and Peter falls down in front of him and says, Lord, I am a sinful man. So sin has entered our, our story here in early in chapter 5, and then what Luke does there then next is, okay, so we have sin. Now we have this man with leprosy, so Jesus has authority over diseases, but Jesus, by cleansing this man, allowed this man's sin to be forgiven, and now Jesus takes it even a step further. And Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sin. And that's what this whole story really centers around. Because Luke is telling the story to prove if, if, if Jesus doesn't have authority to forgive sin, then really all that he proclaims later on doesn't matter. Because Jesus would come and die for the forgiveness of our sin. And so if Jesus doesn't have the authority to do that, what's it matter if he died? So there's a very specific reason that Luke is sequencing the, way, the things this way. Luke is grouping in themes as opposed to chronology. But now we're in this story. So Jesus has a big crowd. He's in a house. And he has a big crowd around him. And it tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees came from all over, from Galilee, from Judea, the two regions of, uh, of Israel, and then Jerusalem as well. So all of like the, the head honcho scholars, they would be in Jerusalem because that's where everyone wanted to be. That's where the temple was. That's where the, the hub of uh, uh, ancient Israeli life was. So all of these guys have come because they've started to hear that Jesus is claiming to have this authority. And then the crowds are coming in because they heard that Jesus could heal. And so this house is packed. 
There's no way in. And then you have these four dudes carrying their friend on like a stretcher. And they're trying to get him to Jesus because they knew if they could get him to Jesus, Jesus would heal him. And a, a man that's been paralyzed has no ability to work, has no ability to take care of his family. There's no welfare in you know, ancient Rome. He's literally, most paralytics would be dragged out to the city gates and would be beggars and would beg people to give them. And we see many accounts of, of beggars doing this, of paralytics doing this all throughout the Bible stories. So this man was hopeless. But his friends heard about Jesus. And his friends, instead of coming in and seeing the crowd and, and looking at him and saying, hey man, I, Sorry, dude. It's packed in there. Maybe next time. They say, you know what? No, no. We're not going to be deterred. I know that if I can get my friend to Jesus, that Jesus will fix everything. I know that if I could just get him to the feet of Jesus, that Jesus would make this man whole. So they go outside. And, and the way that, that houses in, in ancient Palestine at this time were kind of built, they would have uh, stairs along the outside to access the roof. And so they, they, they probably walk out and they say, you know what, let's go to the roof. I don't know if they knew what they were going to do at this point, but they're kind of just winging it, right? Like, I can't get to Jesus, but we're going to figure it out. So they go up to the roof. And the way that roofs were constructed at this point is you've got, you've got these interlocking sticks, or, or wood, depending on, on how rich the person was, right? And so it's, it's built cross thats like this, or, or if it's actual like wooden planks, it, they're, they're pretty solid together like this. And then on top of that, there's like hay and sticks and different things to kind of try to insulate a little bit. And then on top of that, there's about a foot of really packed earth. They would bring in dirt and just pack it on to try to make it waterproof. So these guys are like, well, I don't really know how to get to Jesus. And, you know, maybe they had an engineer uh, in, in their midst and who's measuring out where they think Jesus was in the room. Uh, and they, they're, they're digging, they literally are digging through this roof, right? It's not just like they, you know, pushed aside some tiles or like, hey, there's a skylight. Like, no, like they're literally digging and trying to figure this out. And think about this, like if, imagine if I was here teaching and someone was digging through this roof, right? You could hear it. But these guys are like, you know what? I, I just know if we can get this dude to Jesus, that Jesus can heal him. So they're, they're prepared to do whatever it takes. They're prepared to damage someone's house to get this man to Jesus. And so they do. And here's the deal. They don't know if Jesus is going to be ticked off when, like, when he, this guy's lowered in front of him. They have no idea what Jesus' reaction is going to be. But they said, you know what, even on the off chance, we're going to do this. So they lower him down. They put him in front of Jesus' feet. And when Jesus sees him, Jesus says, seeing their faith, the friends and the man said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, up to this point, we have no time that has been captured where Jesus forgives sin. This is the first time that Jesus is going to, to proclaim his authority over sin. 
In the last story, Jesus sent the leper to the priests to start the, the sin offering and to start those preparations so he could be clean again. So these men didn't lower Jesus down to get their friend's sins forgiven. They lowered him down to get healed. But Jesus knew the man's deepest need. Jesus knew the man's ultimate need, which was forgiveness. And so this is immediately what Jesus does. When, there, when faith is exercised, Jesus responds by forgiving sin. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. But I've got a couple questions for us. Are we convinced that Jesus can help our friends? Like, are we really convinced? Because I know that most times I would say I'm convinced, I don't act like it. Most times I say, like, oh, I know if, oh, if, if only so-and-so would, would come to know Jesus, man, it would just change their life. But it's this passive, man, I wish, I hope. Are we really convinced that Jesus can save our friends? Because if we are, we will rip the roof off of a place to get them in front of Jesus. If we are so convinced that Jesus can save our loved ones, we would do whatever it takes to get them to the feet of Jesus. Yet sometimes spilled coffee and a stubbed toe keep us from coming to church. Sometimes fear of, well, I don't know what they're saying. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to invade their space. Our, the reality is, if we allow obstacles to keep us from bringing our friends to Jesus, we will never get them there. Never. These men understood. Now, Jesus could have healed him. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted. Jesus shows oftentimes that he knows when people are sick. When the centurion comes to him, Jesus knows your son is healed. He's already been healed. So Jesus could have done that, but he didn't. Because even though Jesus doesn't need us, Jesus uses us. And I want us to be people who will rip the roof off to get people in front of Jesus. An early church father named Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, put it this way in Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. As listen to these words, Paul is saying that he, he would take their place. He is so convinced in Jesus' power to save his friends that he says, man, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ so that you would come to know him. Paul loves someone enough to rip the roof off to get him in front of Jesus. The second question I have is, are we willing to take risks to get our friends to Jesus? We risk relationships. I know that. I understand that. I understand it very well. 
my three best friends, not a one of them know Jesus. And every time that I speak into a situation in their life, and I bring in my Jesus talk, I risk that they don't come back. I get it. But Matthew, another gospel writer, says this in Matthew 11. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violence have been seizing it by force. Guys, we are in a war for the very lives and souls of our friends and our loved ones. And it is a risk. When you're in a war, it is a risk to do anything. It's a risk to advance. It's a risk to extend. It's a risk. I get it. But here we see a story where these four friends said, you know what? I'll risk anything. I'll risk rejection of Jesus. I'll risk the wrath of man in destroying this dude's roof. I will do, I will take any risk because I know. I know that my friend needs Jesus. It's why my wife and I left everything that we have to move here. It's why Kim and Andrew did it 10 years ago. We know, we understand. You see, guys, this is enemy territory. The city of Seattle, more than a lot of places, has been the enemy's territory for a very long time, and he does not want to give it up. And he will fight and fight and fight violently against the kingdom advancing into his space. Are we willing to risk what it takes to see people know Jesus? Because, guys, when we exercise our faith, Jesus responds. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Last question I have for you is, are we willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to get our friends to Jesus? Paul, in his church to the letter at Corinth, says this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from, God, from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those who are not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul here, if you guys aren't familiar with who Paul was, Paul uh, was, was known as a man named Saul and he was, he was one of the foremost up and coming young rabbis. He was a Pharisee. He was on the fast track to being every, what every young Jewish boy wanted to be. He would have power. He would have authority. He would have uh, people following him. And he used all of that to, to travel around the country killing followers of Jesus. And then he met Jesus. And he went from killing to being the first Christian missionary in a matter of years very quick turnaround. He goes and he studies with the apostles to learn what Jesus says and then he goes off. 
But he does something here. So I said he, was, he used to be known as Saul. And oftentimes people think that, well, God changed his name because God changes names a lot through the Bible. Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah. You know, uh, Simon became Peter. We, we, know all, you know, we know that Jesus and God change names often. But this isn't one of those times. The Bible never tells us that, that God tells Saul that you'll be now known as Paul. No, Paul knows that he is called to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And he knows that Saul is a very Jewish name. So Saul goes as far as changing his own name, going by the Greek form of his name, Paul, instead of Saul, in order that he might save some. He became all things to all men. And that's heavy to become weak to save the weak, to act as if you were under the law, to save those that were under the law. Are we willing to do whatever it takes, to be creative in the way that we share the gospel in order for our friends to get to the feet of Jesus? Things that we might not think work. I was sitting with my friend Tim Howe. Tim is, uh, is the head of church planting for this area for the Northwest Baptist Convention. And he used to be a missionary, and he has so many cool stories of how God works on the mission field. Man, I, I didn't know this. He's not a guy that tells stories about himself very often, but I got him in a lunch, and I got him telling stories, and it was awesome. So he told me about his second posting in a place called Algeria in Africa. And there was a place that, that had been before, so they knew that God could use anything, but they started just broadcasting the gospel 24 hours a day out on, on radio waves. That's all they did. They just sent out gospel radio, just preaching all day long, just literally out into the world and gave away for people who listened to it to contact them if they wanted to know more. It sounds crazy to me. It is crazy to think that you just literally send out the gospel into the air somewhere and people could respond but they do. They found a creative way to get into people's lives so that they could bring them to the feet of Jesus. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to be all things to all people so that we might win some? Guys, it's tough. It is tough. But it's simple. Every one is different and every story is unique. And so as we approach our friends and our family members, we can't use the same tactics every time. We can't speak the same way. We can't push as hard. We can't push as little. We have to find what each person needs and we have to love them enough to rip the roof off to get them to the feet of Jesus. Because it's that important. But then... The rest of the story goes like this in chapter, in verse 21. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say you're forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So Jesus asserts his authority here. 
because of the faith of these four friends, to get their friends to the feet of Jesus, because of this man's faith that Jesus could heal him, his sins become forgiven. Oftentimes, that's what people are looking for when they come to Jesus, right? Oftentimes, when people are searching, they're looking just to be healed because they're hurting, because they're broken, because they're sinners and sufferers like you and me, and we know that sin is a rot that goes deep all the way to our souls. Oftentimes, people are just coming to Jesus to get healed, but he offers them so much more. And so this is this really interesting scenario where these scribes who are coming to try to catch Jesus so they could find a way to get him arrested. Jesus gives them exactly what they want. He forgives a man's sin, and they are thinking, ooh, we got him. He's a blasphemer. And Jesus, showing his omniscience, reads their minds and says, what's easier, me to tell somebody their sin is forgiven? They can't prove that. They have no idea. It's a subjective thing. Or for me to tell him to walk. We can kind of tell if that is true or not, right? He walks or he doesn't walk. But Jesus says, but to show you that I am who I say I am. He calls himself the son of man. This is the first time that we see this phrase used. Son of man is a reference to prophecies that were given by a man named Daniel in the Old Testament. He says, the son of man, to show you the son of man has authority to forgive sins. He looks at the man. He, I love it. He's addressing the Pharisees. And then he says, you want, you want to see what I can do? And then he turns to the man. He says, get up and walk. And the man grabs his litter and he puts one step of faith and his legs hold him. And he takes another step of faith and his legs hold him. And this man goes home healed and forgiven, all because four friends had faith and had, did anything they could to get him in front of Jesus. The real paralytics here were the scribes and the Pharisees, not the man laying down. They were the ones sitting around when they should be ushering people to Jesus. And so often we love to put ourselves as the four friends in this story, or we love to put ourselves even as the paralytic man in the story, but so often when we're looking at the Gospels, so often we as the church, we find ourselves as the Pharisees and the scribes, not the heroes of the story. The ones sitting and, and listening instead of getting people out of the way, removing obstacles and bringing people to the feet of Jesus. I'm guilty. I am. I wish I could stand in front of here and, and, and tell you, I'm so good at this. I bring people to church all the time. I'm always having gospel conversations. I'm always I'm not. But when I read these stories, I realize that how integral and how much God uses my faith to bring people to the feet of Jesus. And it's because I'm, sometimes I'm not convinced. If we truly look at ourselves, we realize sometimes why we're not breaking down the doors and ripping off the roof is because we're not convinced that Jesus saved us. So how could he save others? But friends, let me tell you, be convinced. Jesus can heal your deepest hurt. He can also forgive your sin.
Jesus, a man who came humbly, asserts authority over disease and demons and death. Let's not be like the Pharisees who sit and let obstacles keep people from the feet of Jesus. Because Jesus alone can heal our sin. And Jesus alone can heal our suffering. Luke would go on in, in this letter that he's writing to a man named Theophilus that we call the book of Luke. We also call the second half the book of Acts. He's going to say this in chapter 4, verse 12. There is a salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There's no other salvation. There's no other government. There's no nonprofit. There's no you know, meditation. There's no special prayer. There's nothing on heaven or on earth that can save except Jesus. And so often, people need friends like you and me to rip the roof off, to put them in front of Jesus. Like Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. I wish I could stand and show you all the examples of times that I've ripped roofs off to get people to Jesus, but I can't. But I'm working on it. Because I realize my need for Jesus. I am convinced that Jesus can save. But I don't want to leave us there. I don't want to leave us in conviction. Because some of us do have times that we rip roofs off. And the, the reality is, is we can start today and be completely different people. And we can start ripping roofs off all over town. Because this is the response. This is what happens when we see Jesus forgive sin and heal people. Verse 25 says this. Immediately he got up before them, he being the man who was healed, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded and they were giving glory to God and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. We have seen incredible things today. That's what I love about being here together in corporate worship is that we get to celebrate the incredible things that God is doing in our lives, in, the, in our city, in our state, in our country, and in our world. It's amazing that, that sometimes this corporate gathering is either the only thing that we have in worship or the one thing that we kind of cut out of worship because together, it's the testimony of seeing what God is doing, God doing incredible things together that we are sent out from this place and we are able to be a blessing to the city of Seattle and beyond. Because when we see Jesus forgive sin and heal people, man, there's no other response other than to give glory to God. There's no other response other than to dance and sing and shout and be excited because Jesus saves people. I don't know what that does to your heart, but I know, man, for me, Jesus saves people. I love the word rescue. I love to use that term in, in, term, in, in, in you know, uh, when I'm talking about Jesus because Jesus came to our rescue. He came to rescue sinners and sufferers like you and me. And he's the only one that has the authority to do it. 
to save us from our deepest need, sin, and to heal us, to heal our deepest hurt. Worship is the only logical response to the forgiveness of sin. When we understand that, we understand, like me, giving my debt being forgiven, me finally being out of the weight of a suspended license. I never want to go back. I never want to go back. It changed how I lived my life. It changed what I did. Not because anybody told me to, but because I realized what the weight I was carrying was like. Jesus is the same way. When we realize the weight of sin and suffering and that Jesus has come to alleviate and has the authority to alleviate them both, man, we will love people enough to rip the roof off to get them to the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so kind. Lord, forgive me a sinner. Lord, forgive me a Pharisee sitting and listening instead of ushering people to the feet of Jesus. God, forgive me. Lord, I pray that my faith would be used to bring people to the feet of Jesus. Lord, I pray that my love would be big enough to rip the roof off to get people to the feet of Jesus. Lord, I pray that together I would celebrate the work you are doing in people's lives so that we would go out and glorify you. We'd be energized to love people to Jesus. I pray that we would take risks. We would be creative. Lord, I pray that we would be violent in our pursuit of the kingdom. God, thank you for my friends. Thank you that this man didn't do this alone. He had four friends with him. Lord, I pray that we surround ourselves with friends who would carry us when we are broken to the feet of Jesus. And then we would turn around and do the same for others. God, you are so good. We do not deserve you do not deserve your gifts, but you did it anyway. And now you welcome us, arms open wide, to come to you, a loving Father. I pray that our faith would be encouraged. In Jesus' name.